0: Well, I invite you to please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, Genesis 11, and we're going to be looking at a number of verses, as always, so the guys have some Bibles, they're going to make their way toward the back, if you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you, in Genesis 11, you know, most of us tend to have a very simplistic view of of right and wrong. Morality, for many of us, comes down to this, just avoid doing bad things. If you don't do bad things, then by default, you do good things. If you refrain from doing wrong, then you're always doing right. So you're moral. You're good to go. Now, of course, it is true that all of us should avoid doing things that are harmful, either to ourselves or to others. And avoid anything else that fits under the category of of bad. But God is concerned not only with what we do, but why we do it. And that means even when we do good things, it can be for the wrong reasons. That is, what we do may be good, but why we do it is not. So often in the Bible, when God describes the condition of humanity... He speaks of our motivations, not just our behavior, not just our, our actions. As an example in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is alive and active, and notice it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Not just what we do, but thoughts and attitudes. And at a point in the first part of your Bible, in the Old Testament... God condemned his people, the people of Israel, because they were going through the motions in their worship with him. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So they're doing the right thing. They're saying the right thing, but not for the right reason. So what is the right reason? Well, the motivation of every thought, every word, and every deed is, is to be our love for God and the advance of his glory. That's why the Bible says famously, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then applied to, you see that verse applies to eating, drinking, whatever you do. And then in another lesser known passage in Colossians chapter 3, it's applied to to our work. And the Bible says, says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord. So that is the motivation, that is the attitude of the heart that ought to animate every word and every deed that we engage in. Love for God in the advance of His glory. But from the beginning, our chief temptation has been to place ourselves at the center and God on the sidelines. And I say from the very beginning because you'll remember in Genesis chapter 3, in the first human sin. But the serpent tempted the man and the woman, saying, God has told you not to eat of this fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden because he knows that you will be like God. And that temptation to be like God ourselves, to make ourselves the center, was too great for them. Our natural tendency is to follow the maxim of the great Greek philosopher Protagoras, who said, man is the measure of all things. When people gather and they consciously focus on what we all subconsciously are tempted toward, this self-centeredness, this self-focus, the result is things like the American Humanist Association. Perhaps you've never heard of that, but it's a group that was founded in 1933 by, among others, the father of progressive... Education and the creator of the Dewey Decimal System used in libraries, John Dewey. The American Humanist Association has issued three what they call manifestos, one at its founding in 1933, and then Humanist Manifesto II in 1973, and Manifesto III in 2003. Humanist Manifesto II succinctly captures the creed of the American Humanist Association when it says this, We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. Humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Now, millennia before there was an American Humanist Association, the Bible records the beginning of the apex of humanism in its opening chapters, in an event known as the Tower of Babel. The world was gathered in one place, with one language, and as is the bent of human nature, they rejected God and sought to build their own monument to themselves. So this morning we're going to continue our series through these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And we're going to see what they did, and we're going to see how God responded to it. Let's ask God to help us then, as we do. Father, again, we're gathered now in your presence, and we have calmed our hearts and focused our attention upon your word. Help us, Lord, then, not to be distracted now, and help us to learn from your word more about who you are, more about what our frailties and our sinfulness is, and what your solution, your gracious solution to that is. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I'd like to first explain what's taking place in verses 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 11. And then we'll make some application of that with the points that are in the message outline. Every week we have that inserted in your program, as most of you know. But if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. We'll be looking at it a bit, a bit later. Verse 1 of Genesis 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So here is the Bible picking up where it left off at the end of Genesis chapter 9. Now there's chapter 10 in between. We're going to briefly look at some of chapter 10 in just a bit. Chapter 10 begins with, this is the account of the sons of Noah in verse 1. And then it goes on to give the descendants of Ham and Shem and Japheth, the sons of Noah, And then when we come to chapter 11, it says that those descendants were gathered at this place called called Shinar. And at this point in human history, there's only one language, and the people are not divided into into nations, and they're not separated by language barriers, and so here they are in this plain in Shinar. Now, where is Shinar? Well, the word means land between two rivers. And the two rivers are the Tigris Tigris and the Euphrates. And so this place is located in what today we would call modern-day Iraq. Shinar is modern-day Iraq, and it is where Babylon began and where later the Babylonian Empire will will be centered. So when Genesis chapter 11 speaks of this gathering of all humanity in this one place, it's speaking of them, as gathered in in Babylon. And we know that Shinar is Babylon because uh, later, in the Babylonian Empire, it's actually called that. You'll remember that King Nebuchadnezzar took Jewish young men from Jerusalem and he moved them to to Babylon. But notice what Daniel, who was one of those who was taken in captivity, Daniel chapter 1 says about that. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, brought articles from the house of God in Jerusalem to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. So the Babylonian king takes these captives and also takes these articles from the temple to this place called Shinar, which is Babylon. And the word Babylon means gateway to God. So what you have here in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1 is humanity gathered And humanity gathered, as we're going to see, for their own purposes, not God's. But they call themselves the gateway to God. And they sought, indeed, to build such a gateway. But this gateway was really a monument to themselves, not worship of the true and living God. Verse 3 says, They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, you see in those verses what their intention is, what their motivation is. Building a tower in itself is not a good thing. It can be not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. But remember, it's not just the act, it's the motivation for the act. And the motivation for the act is for us to build ourselves a city and make a name for ourselves. No mention of God, no mention of the glory of God and the motivation of advancing his fame. And so one author has said of these verses, many centuries before Christ, even before there were multiple languages and dialects, tribes and nations, The people of the earth lived in an area called Shinar and spoke the same universal language. By unanimous vote, they agreed to build an enormous structure, a tower whose top would reach into heaven itself. One translation calls this construction project a proud eternal monument to themselves. Doesn't that sound appealing? Doesn't that sound like a project that would attract everyone's attention? I mean, nobody could resist This was the choice opportunity of a lifetime. He says, I can just imagine the Shinar Chamber of Commerce promoting the new slogan, glory to man in the highest, as they recruited workers for the project. Everybody pitched in. This tower has intrigued me for years, he says, especially its top that would reach into heaven. As a little boy in Sunday school, I remember seeing pictures of the Tower of Babel. Each picture of the tower portrayed its top far up in the clouds. And so I assumed in my little mind that the top literally went right up to the heavens and into the very throne room of God. But of course, there's no way that such an immense towering structure could actually be erected. And so I just say to those of you who teach our children, those pictures, those images stay with you for a long time. They can damage you for life. So make sure you get them right. Sizable construction projects were possible, but they were certainly not that tall. Several years ago, I went back and did a little extra digging in the Genesis text and discovered some helpful information. I found that a crucial part of verse 4 reads literally, whose upper part is with the heavens. The little preposition with is a preposition of accompaniment or representation. So somehow the topmost part of the tower was designed and constructed so that it would represent the heavens, not actually reach all the way up to to God. And in my study, I also learned that an extensive evacuation took place in the land of Shinar a number of decades ago. Not just one tower, but many of these what are called ziggurats. They're cone-shaped structures built with a spiral road around them for journeying up and down, and a number of these were constructed. And among all of these cone-shaped structures in this particular area, one tower stood above all the rest. Chances are good that the tallest was the tower referred to in Genesis 11. What's most interesting is that they discovered in that particular tower the signs of the zodiac, etched into the stonework up toward its peak, signs and symbols that represented the stellar spaces, which are commonly called the heaven's. And that's what appeared at the top. So what you've got is this structure. And these are found all over the Mideast, these ziggurats. And they are pyramid-like structures. And at the top, many of them have a temple where worship would take place, but not worship of the true and living God. And you have these kinds of etchings. So that's what they're building. They're building something now after the flood, after God has destroyed all humanity, Humanity, again, is showing its true nature. Rebelling against God and focusing upon itself rather than the God who made them. God responded to that initiative. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. And that's why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So they are in Shinar. And they are building Babylon gateway to God. But God responds by saying, I'm going to confuse your language and the name of the place becomes Babel, not gateway to God. But the word Babel means confusion. And God placed them in confusion and scattered them throughout the earth. Now, when did all this happen? We last left Noah and his sons and their, and their wives. Having survived the flood, just eight people were left alive. And now we come to chapter 11 and we have all humanity gathered in Babylon, in Shinar, to build this edifice to themselves. So when did all of this take place? Well, chapter 10 and verse 25 gives us a clue. In chapter 10, you have this table of nations that we'll look briefly at in a bit. But in the midst of it, in verse 25, it says two sons were born to Eber. One named Peleg, because in his time, the earth was divided. So this division, this scattering, took place at the time, in the lifetime of this guy, Peleg. So if we have some idea as to when he lived, then we would have some idea as to when the uh, Tower Babel project occurred. Peleg lived, if you follow the, the genealogies that are given in chapter 11, later in chapter 11, beginning in verse 10, four generations after the flood. Four generations after the flood, he was, he was born. So that's about 100 years after the flood. Now, this project could have taken place as many as 340 years after the flood. And here's why I say that. Because in chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, we're told that Peleg lived to be 239. So if you add four generations or about 100 years after the flood, then you have about 340 years that this could occur. So anywhere from 100 years when Peleg was born to 340 years to when he died, sometime in that time period after the flood is when the Babel event occurred. And so there would have been, depending on whether it was 100 years or 340, many thousands or millions of people who have repopulated the earth From Noah's family at that point. They're all gathered these thousands or perhaps millions depending. And all languages come from this event. At that time they all spoke one language. But then God confuses their language. And nations and races come from this event as well. With regard to the languages. There are nearly 7,000 languages now. But those are all variations of a much smaller number of what linguists call language families. Chapter 10 lists 70 progenitors of these nations. It's not an exhaustive list, but if you were to count through the descendants of the sons of Noah, Ham and Shem and Japheth, you would find that there are 70 listed there. But there are 100 or so or as few as a 100 or so language families could easily produce the variety we have now over time. So you've got 70 mentioned in chapter 10. These people are scattered into different nations with different languages. And out of those language families over time then come the variations of language that we have today, nearly 7,000 languages. And so when Corduan who wrote a book that we have in your resource center and that I recommend to you in the, in the beginning. And he documents much of what happened historically and correlates it with what is said in these opening chapters of Genesis. He says this, the affiliation of various languages with one another can be established by means of comparing vocabulary and grammar. Obviously, there will be major differences between language, otherwise we would not be differentiating them. But in a family of languages certain stems and patterns reappear in the representative languages. The large number of similar words in a language family allows us to stipulate earlier languages from which these languages developed, which in turn developed from earlier language, until we get all the way back to the beginning of that language family. To try to go back from a language family to a language from which the language family developed doesn't seem possible, even though some scholars are mounting hypothesis after hypothesis trying to achieve such a result. The distinction between the language families seem to be irreconcilable, and this phenomenon furnishes a good reason to accept the account of the Tower of Babel. If this event had not happened, linguists would have to invent one to account for the differences in language families. Now, that's a lot. What's he saying? He's saying, we've got all of these varieties of language with us today, but they've all come from a relatively small number of language families. And you can go back by comparing languages and stems and roots and seeing the similarities between them to see that they came a particular language came from a particular family. But you can't go beyond that. And that's because at a place called Babel, all of these started at the same time. Now, in chapter 10, we're given a, a listing of the seven ancestors, uh, the seven descendants, I should say, of Noah's of Noah's sons, and I invite you to take a look at chapter ten. And We'll quickly offer some thoughts about how these are are laid out. In verses two through five, we're given the sons and grandsons of Japheth. The sons of Japheth, verse 2, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, now I want you to notice verse 3, is now listing the sons of one of the sons. You see that? So you've got seven sons, but now you're, you're having listed the sons of the first one listed, the sons of Gomer. So these would be the grandsons of Japheth. And then you have the sons of of Javan. But you only have, now you've got got seven sons, but you've only got grandsons listed from two of them. Now in all likelihood, the other five, or at least most of the other five, had children as well. So why are there only only two listed? This pattern goes on for about half of chapter 10, where the number of names that's listed adds up to seven. And the idea uh, at that time was to show that I've completed what I want to say. Seven is the number for completion. And so the author always brings it back to seven. And that's why the number of descendants total in this chapter is 70. To give a complete but not exhaustive list. Complete for the author's purposes. And so he doesn't give the grandsons of the of the other five. So you've got 14 descendants of... Japheth listed in total. And then you have the sons of Ham. We're not going to go through all of that, but there are 30. And then later with Shem, there are 26 for this total of 70. Now, Ham has the most listed. He has the most 30. Now, why is that? The reason is this part of the author's purpose, part of Moses' purpose in putting this to, together is to show Israel where the nations came from that are their opponents. And he focuses particularly on the nations that came from their ancestor Ham because you'll remember from chapter 9, Ham's descendants through Canaan are the ones who were cursed because of what Ham had done. And so now Moses is saying, these nations that are persecuting us, this is where they came from. And he's setting it up to show what their end will be versus what the end of God's people, the Israelites, will be. And so there are 30 of the the Hamites listed. But right in the middle of this, verse 8, one of the sons of Ham was Cush, and Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Apparently a popular saying at that time, a known saying. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalne in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Reason, which is between Nineveh and Kala which is the great city. Now, this biography in the middle of all of this for this guy named Nimrod, why? Well, it says here he built his his cities centered in Babylon, in Shinar, the very place that chapter 11 is telling us now that this rebellion took place. And that's fitting because the name Nimrod means let us rebel. Nimrod is the leader, then, of what we read about when we come to to chapter 11. And then in verse 19, the borders of Canaan are given in detail. The borders of Canaan reached from Sinan to Gerar as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, and so on. Now, why is that the case? Because, again, Moses is writing this. And Moses is writing to assure the people that are the first recipients of what he's writing here that God has set all of this in motion that they are experiencing at the time he's leading them. And they're going to go into the promised land and they're going to be Canaanites there. But Moses wants to make sure they know where the Canaanites came from. And so here's where they've spread out to. And we are instructed by God to defeat them in the promised land. So all of this is preparation, setting up for what God is going to do. And then after Ham's genealogy, this pattern of seven ends. And then uh, the genealogy of Shem is, is given. From verses 21 to to. 31, and notice what verse 21 says. Sons were born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Now, why does that matter? Here's why. One, Moses has left Shem for last. And we're going to see a little bit later why he left Shem for last, because something special is going to happen through the line of Shem. But also in verse 21 Ham is not mentioned. Shem is mentioned only in connection with Japheth. And Ham is left out. Why is that? Because back at the end of chapter 9, it is Shem and Japheth who have a blessing pronounced upon them and their lineage, and Ham's lineage is, is cursed. And so in verse 21, there were sons born to Shem, and a reminder that he's in league with, he's part of the blessing that Japheth experiences, And Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. We're going to see that Eber is is important as well. And then the chapter ends in verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So what you have in chapter 10 and chapter 11 is out of chronological order. In chapter 10, you have the listing of all of these progenitors of these nations, and many of the nations are named after, and some even to this day, named after the people who are listed here. They became the fathers of, of nations. Moses is laying out that history, but then in chapter 11, he's saying this is how they came to be scattered. So we now, in Moses' time, know them as these nations. But I want to tell you how it is that they came to be scattered, and that's what he does in chapter 11 with the event at the Tower of Babel. Now, I call your attention then to your outline, because I'd like for us to make some application then of chapters 10 and 11. And I say, first of all, in your outline, this, that the Lord prepares us for what we need. The Lord prepares us for what we need. What Part of what the Lord is doing here in chapters 10 and 11 is he is setting the stage for chapter 12 and the entrance of a man named Abraham at the beginning of a new nation called Israel. Conspicuous in its absence in chapter 10 with this listing of the table of nations is any mention of Israel. Now at the time this is written, Israel exists. And you would think that Moses might highlight Israel in the midst of all of these other nations. But he doesn't because he's showing the the sequence in which this occurred. You have all these other nations. They are hostile to God. They're going to be hostile to God's people. And God is going to establish a new nation through a new ancestor, Abraham, that is going to be the answer to mankind's problem. So conspicuous in its absence from this table of nations in chapter 10 is, is Israel. And we're left, the reader is left, wondering what is the solution going to be. So God puts us, friends, in position to see and want what only he can give. And that's what he's doing here. We've seen over and over again now the problem. Adam and Eve sin. Uh, Cain sins. We see uh, Noah and his sons sin. Now we see at Babel, sin again. We see the pattern over and over and over again. And God is putting us in position to see what we need and want what only he can give. And God did that going back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, you'll remember the episode in which God told Adam, I'm giving you dominion over all of the creatures of the earth. And one of the responsibilities that Adam had was to name all of the animals. You remember that? So in chapter two, we find Adam naming the animals. But right before Adam goes into this exercise of naming all of the animals, God said this to him. God said, I will make a helper suitable for him. He saw that the man was alone and it's not good that the man be alone. And the Lord says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. But God doesn't do it right away. It's the next verse where you find Adam now having the animals paraded before him and naming them as they come before him, male and female, two by two. Now, God sees that the man's alone. God already pronounces, I'm going to fix the problem. But he doesn't fix the problem right away until the man sees the depth of his problem. And how does he see it? By pairs coming before him, male and female. And so... At the end of that, God made a woman, Genesis 2 tells us, and brought her to the man, but it was in between that these animals are paraded in front of Adam, and here's what the Bible says. At the end of Adam, seeing these animals come come through and naming them, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So God not only said, I'm going to fix it, but I want you to see the depth of your need for me to fix it. God's going to fix this problem of sin, recurring sin. But I want you to see the depth of your need for me to fix it, for me to do what only I can do. Now hear this, friends. Often in our lives, that's the way God deals with us. God intends to fix it. He's definitely going to fix it in heaven. He's going to fix it in glory. He may fix it in this life. One way or another, God's going to fix it, but he may not fix it when you want him to. And one of the reasons God waits is because he wants us to see that he is the only source of the solution to our dilemmas. So that we focus our attention on him so that our attitude and our motivations are what we looked at at the beginning, the glory of God. In fact, the entire first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is preparing us for the answer to come, isn't it? And as you read through it, you're you're to be asking yourself, what is the solution going to be? When is the solution going to come? And through all of those centuries, God is preparing His people for what they need, preparing them subjectively for what He objectively is going to provide. The Lord prepares us for what we need. Secondly, the Lord protects us for what we need. The Lord protects us for what we need. Now, how do we see that in this Tower of Babel episode in Genesis chapter 11? Remember, the Lord said in verse 5 that the people have gathered, they have one language, and now nothing that they designed to do will be kept from them. And if you, as you read that, if you're not careful, you can think, These people are so smart, they're going to catch up with me. This is what God's saying. Wow, look at that. That's a pretty impressive tower. If they keep this up, they're going to be as impressive as I am. Nothing could be further from the truth. What God is saying is this, that when sinful humanity gathers itself in one place and unites itself, then their designs always, even if at the beginning well intended, those designs always move towards sin, self-centeredness, and so God is going to protect them from themselves. The only way to keep this from happening and continuing and God thus destroying them as he did in Noah's day, the only way to keep that from happening is for God to separate them. And that's why God confuses their language and scatters them. He's protecting for what we need. And God does this. God does this regularly in our lives. You remember the disciples' prayer that Jesus gave to his first followers and by extension to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then in the sixth and final petition of the six requests given in that, the sixth and final one is this in Matthew chapter 6. Lead us not into temptation." but deliver us from the evil one. Do you understand, dear friends, that we have to have the protection of God every moment of every day, asking God to deliver us from the temptations to which we are so susceptible, and God is protecting his people in advance here. God told Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. The Lord's protection upon his people for what we need. He protects us from ourselves, even if that means taking things that we want from us. The Lord scattered the world in order to spare the world so that he could meet its need in a new nation. And so the Lord prepares us for what we need. He protects us for what we need. And then I say thirdly in your outline. The Lord provides what we need. The Lord provides what we need. Now, how does the Lord go about providing what we need? Well, I've got a couple of ways in your outline. The first is this the Lord pursues the promise that He has made to His people. The Lord pursues the promise made to His people. Now this goes all the way back then, in the Lord's pursuit of his promise, all the way back then to chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, which we've looked at in part. But in verses 21 to 31, you have the genealogy, the descendants of Noah's son, Shem. In verses 21 to to 31. And one commentator says this, The line of Shem is traced up to the two sons of Eber... And from there, continues to follow the line of the second son in verses 26 to 29 of chapter 10, Joktan. It is significant that another genealogy of Shem is repeated after the account of the building of Babylon, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 11. And there the line is continued to Abraham through the first son, Eber, the first son of Eber, Peleg. In arranging the genealogy of Shem in that way, Moses draws a dividing line between the descendants of Shem on either side of the city of Babylon. The dividing line falls between the two sons of Eber, Peleg and Joktan. One line leads to the building of Babylon and the other to the family of Abraham. The author supplies a hint to this division of the line of Shem with the comment that it was in Peleg's day, that the earth was divided in chapter 10 and verse 25. And as throughout the biblical text, throughout the Bible, the earth is a reference to the inhabitants of the land. And so not only is the land divided in the confusion of languages, but more fundamentally, two great lines of humanity diverge from the midst of the sons of Shem, those who seek to make a name, the sons of Shem for themselves in the building of the city of Babylon and those for whom God will make a name in the call of Abraham. Now, again, that's a mouthful. Let me quickly explain. In the descendants of Shem, given in chapter 10, you have two sons, one Eber and one Joktan. And as you follow their descendants and the nations that flow from them, it's going to be through Eber that Abraham is going to come. Abraham's father, Terah, and then Abraham. Now, here's why that's significant. The word Eber is the word from which we eventually get Hebrew. The Hebrews come through this line. And they are going to settle in the promised land with a new nation, Israel. And through this other, through this, uh, other uh, son of, of Eber, Joktan, you have them settling on the other side of, of Babylon. And so this is the Lord pursuing his promise to his people. And God does that, friends, with us. God has given you the promise that you will, you will, if you are his child, make it to the promised land. And God moves heaven and earth to protect us, to prepare us, and to pursue that promise that he has made to his people. And that's why the Bible says things like this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God Provides what we need in per- pursuing his his promise. And the Bible says in first Thessalonians five, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. That's what's being taught to God's people as Moses pens this this history. The Lord pursues his promise. And then ultimately, I say in your outline, the Lord fulfills his promise. The Lord fulfills his promise. So going all the way back now to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. After the first sin, and God pronounces consequences on the man, the woman, and upon the serpent. And God says to the serpent in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. You are going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. God says that the answer to sin is going to come through the seed of the woman, is going to come through a member of the human race. And so with each son born after that, people are asking, is this the one? Is Cain the one? No. Is Abel the one? Apparently not. He's murdered. Cain is given or is, is replaced by Seth. Is Seth going to... To be the one. No, but there's a Sethite who comes through the line of Seth named named Noah. Is Noah going to be the one? Noah and his family are spared when God destroys the earth. But Noah gets drunk and he's found naked at the end of chapter 9. So who is ultimately going to be this one through the seed of the woman? Well, of course, we know this to be the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And in Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus, Luke starts with Jesus. And then he says, who was thought to be the son of Luke chapter three, Jesus was the son of so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methath, the son of Levi, the son of and on it goes. So starts with Jesus and then says his father was and his father was and his father was and then goes all the way down as you continue the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber. And that whole story leading to Jesus starts with the Tower of Babel. All the way back to Genesis 10 and 11. And what God had instructed humanity to do was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But in Genesis 11, 1... The people had said, they'd gathered together and they'd said to themselves, we're going to build this tower lest we be scattered. We're not going to fill the earth. God had commanded them to fill the earth. They said they would not. And God makes sure that that is going to happen. He scatters people throughout the earth. And then ultimately the prophet Habakkuk says, there's coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we begin to see this when Jesus comes. The fulfillment of the seed of the woman. The promised seed. And then the march toward the end. The consummation of of human history. And just after Jesus ascends back to heaven. We have this famous event in your New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Do you all remember that? And the Holy Spirit comes. And people who had not learned these particular languages are able to speak in them. And so Acts 2 verse 5 says, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven heard their own language being spoken. Here was Babel in reverse. In the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. But in the days of the apostles, thousands of people from many lands were united for many months And then chapter 2 goes on to say of Acts continuing with one mind and continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And all of that looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise that we find in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where John was given a vision of worship at the end. And John writes this, A great multitude that no one could count, From every nation, tribe, people, and language was standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The curse of Babel, the division of peoples, the separation of nations, and the confusion of tongues will end forever. So these people at... Babel. let's give them the benefit of the doubt that at least at the beginning their project was a good beginning that they had they had uh it 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 was motivated well but it ultimately was motivated for humanity and not for god and god says all things are to be for my glory so it became a good project for the wrong reasons And God does all of these things for his people. He prepares his people, protects his people, and provides for his people in order to give us what we need. Your take-home truth. The Lord is always at work for the good of his people. The Lord is always at work for the good of his people. We're going to pray in just a moment. But as we do, friends... I want you to consider what's happening, what's going on in your life. The same God who orchestrated all of these events and moved heaven and earth to bring the Lord Jesus Christ to earth through the seed of the woman, through the lineage that he had determined, through the Hebrews and through the father of the Hebrews, Abraham. The God who did all of that is the same God who is active in your life. And so in everything that's happening in your life, God's preparing you, and God's protecting you, and God is providing for you. Let's praise God as we go to him in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your work in history. You are the God of history, and history is indeed his story, your story. And Lord, you control the nations, and you do with them as you see fit. And, Lord, you not only control the big things in history, nations and kings and pharaohs, but you control the events of our lives, our individual lives as well. And so Jesus said that two sparrows are sold for a penny, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. And then he said, and the very hairs of our heads are numbered. Not a hair can come out of my head. Not a hair can fall off of the head of one of your people, except it be by the will of our Father. And so, Lord, help us as we look at these grand events and the sweep of history and your control of it. Help us to see that the God who did all of that focuses attention upon his people every moment of every day and moves heaven and earth for our good and your glory. Oh, Lord, we thank you then for the circumstances of our lives in which in each of them. You are indeed preparing us and protecting us and providing for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.